Hi folks, this is Jacob Grace with Grassland 2.0. In the fall of 2021, Grassland 2.0 hosted a four-part digital dialogue series focusing on the question, what are healthy agro-ecosystems? The series explored benefits these systems have on people, farms, communities, and the land. This episode features a recording of Thelma Heidel-Baker, a dairy farmer in eastern Wisconsin. Thelma grew up on a grazing-based dairy farm, the same farm she now owns and operates. But before coming back to the farm, she worked as a professional entomologist. Her professional experience has made her especially aware of the benefits of grazing for insects and other wildlife. Here's Thelma Heidel-Baker, recorded in November of 2021. Hi everybody, it's great to see you here. It is 12 noon here. Um, I'm Skye Harnsberger, your host for today. I'm a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Claudio Gerton's lab. Um, So um, I think we will get started here. Um, I'm so excited to welcome you today to the Grasslands 2.0 Digital Dialogue Series. Um, Again, I'm your host, Sky. This dialogue is part of our four-part series, What Are Healthy Ecosystems? Um, So for today's series, we will be listening and learning from Dr. Thelma Heidel-Baker, an entomologist, organic farmer, and educator. A little more about Dr. Heidel-Baker in a moment, but first I'd like to offer a recognition and a land acknowledgement. So uh, currently this work uh, of the series takes place on the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk. The University of Wisconsin-Madison occupies Ho-Chunk land a place their nation has called De Joke since time immemorial. In an 1832 treaty, the Ho-Chunk were forced to cede this territory. Decades of ethnic cleansing followed when both the federal and state government repeatedly, but unsuccessfully, sought to forcibly remove the Ho-Chunk from Wisconsin. This history of colonization informs our shared future of collaboration and innovation. Today, UW-Madison respects the inherent sovereignty of the Ho-Chunk Nation, along with the 11 other First Nations of Wisconsin. Please take a moment to consider the legacies of violence, displacement, migration, and settlement that bring us together here today. And please join us in uncovering such truths every day. With that said, I'd like to suggest a few ground rules for the discussion, um, and I'll put these in the chat. So we'd just like to ask that everyone here listens and respects uh, everyone else um, and provides their commentary with honesty. And we can acknowledge that it's okay to disagree with one another if we hear something that feels different from our own experience. Um, It's our hope that we can meet conflict with curiosity in the space and that we can allow uh, others to step up while we step back if we are speaking too much or likewise step up if we haven't been speaking much at all. And this is a digital dialogue. It's our hope that this is a, a dialogue. So folks should feel free to add your questions to the chat during Dr. Heidelbaker's talk or raise your hand at the end of the talk. If you've written a question in the chat, 
I'll keep an eye on that and have that as your place in line for questions. And I'll ask you to unmute and repeat your question after the presentation is over. So with all of that said, I am so excited to introduce Dr. Thelma Heidel-Baker. She received her MS from Purdue University and her PhD from the University of Minnesota, both in entomology. And her research was focused on the, and is focused on the risks and impacts faced by predatory insects from different pest management strategies. Thelma has worked for the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation and was an IPM and extension coordinator for field crop pests at Iowa State University. She is an organic dairy farmer in Wisconsin at Bossy Cow Farm and a member of the Organic Valley Co-op. She actively incorporates insect conservation on her family's farm, like the establishment of monarch meadows. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Thelma Heidelbaker. I will send it over to you. Oh, fantastic. Thank you guys so much for that introduction. And hello, everybody. I am going to start sharing my screen here. So I got something more to show you than just looking at me. Uh, so give me a sec here. Okay, are we good to go? I hope so. All right. Um, so I'm really um, honored. I, I'm really excited to be here today and to talk to all of you about some things that are just very near and dear to my heart, um, both personally and professionally, as you will see. Um, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover a lot of different things, and maybe some things in more depth, and some things maybe not quite as much. But I'm gonna give you a journey today, um, kind of a personal journey. And, and get you maybe thinking about some things that you haven't thought about uh, when it comes to grazing, um, grass farming, and yeah, and, and maybe things that you can do if you, if you do graze um, or work with other grazers. So everything that I'm gonna be showing today here, the photos are gonna be coming from my farm. Um, and I just kind of want to let everybody know these are, so these are my photos. I, I love taking photos. So I'm trying to share um, visuals to go along with this. I love doing these talks in person on the farm, but unfortunately that's not always possible. So doing the best that I can to bring you here to my farm without actually being here. All right. So this whole story that we're gonna to take today, um, is, is something that's really exciting to me because it's all these different pieces of my life kind of put together. And I'm going to try and convey some of this to you. So I am an entomologist. I love insects. Um, I know not, not everybody does, and I appreciate that. But my goal is always to make people be able to appreciate insects, maybe not as much as what I do, but recognize at least that they're valuable, they're useful, they're inherently a part of our lives and our landscapes and the ecosystems and we need to have them there. And so everything that I do is I was thinking about like, what can we do for the insects? Um, what can we do to better it for them? Um, as well as trying to teach other people about why these creatures are so important. So that's one part of me. And I do have degrees in entomology um, because I like insects so much. I just didn't want to stop going to school and learning about them. But 
after going to school and becoming an entomologist, there are things that I have learned that are just as important. Um, while insect pest management was my specialty at first, I ended up uh, doing a lot of work in how to conserve beneficial insects. And we'll get a little bit more into that a little bit later. So I've, I've become a conservation specialist. I started out with insects and now actually my day job is working for the US Department of Agriculture as a soil conservationist. And so I work with conservation of natural resources on a lot of different levels. So I think about soil health, I think about water quality, I think about insects, I think about birds, I think about all those natural resources that are out there and how we can conserve them. And um, in particular, because I'm really interested in agriculture as well, how do we integrate that with agriculture and conservation? Um, very exciting, very interesting, and something that I'm really excited about, as you can probably tell. But I'm also a farmer. Uh, so about seven years ago now, I decided to leave academia um, and came back to my family's dairy farm here in Wisconsin. So I'm coming at you from Random Lake, Wisconsin. And my husband and I decided to take our growing family at the time, we had the two kids, um, and move away and move back home um, to take over, or at least see if we had a place at my family's farm. And so since then, I am still on the farm. I'm here on the farm right now. The cows are, well, not out pasture because now we've hit cold weather. Um, but that is an active part of my life as well. I am, I'm not the full-time dairy farmer. Uh, we run a dairy farm um, as well as some other things that I'll show you in a little bit. My husband's a full-time farmer. I'm, I'm part-time farmer, but I run all the farm marketing. I run, I do all the pastured um, non-dairy animals, which I, again, I'll get into in just a little bit. So I'm actively involved in what we're doing here. So I take the insect side, I've got the conservation side, I've got the farmer side. And then also I am part of my family. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a, I'm a wife. Um, and all of these come together because where I live now um, and what we do here is something that, you know, I, I draw from all the different aspects of my life and experiences I've had to try and make this place, this farm, what we do here, um, really important both to me and valuable to others. I like sharing what I do here. I like exposing other people to what grazing is, the benefits of grazing. Like I said, if we could get you out on the farm, that would be the best way to do it. But today here we're at this webinar and being able to talk in a different way and learn from this. So let me introduce a little bit more to our farm because everything that I'm talking about today, I'm gonna to try and tie in with our farm. We are a grass-based grazing farm. Um, we are primarily a dairy farm and we do produce milk for organic valley. So we're a certified organic farm. We also do a lot of grass-fed beef, a growing market there. So I'm really excited about doing um, direct market sales as well of food and trying to support a local food economy. Um, so grass-fed cows, that's one piece of it. One of the livestock that we raise. Another one is pastured poultry. Now this is my, this is my area. My husband doesn't touch anything but the cows. I do pastured poultry, sell eggs, um, sell chickens. And all of these are out on grass. And then finally, we also do pastured pigs on a small scale. Um, and again, trying to use our farm, what we've got here in the best way possible to support our family um, and, and to support high quality lives of the animals that we have as well. So we raise livestock, we got 
cows, poultry, pasture, but the underlying thing behind all of these is the grass, the good grass, that pasture grass. We have to have that out there to support all of these different livestock. So it's easy to say when people ask me, like, what kind of farmer are you? I'm like, oh, it's a dairy farm. But really, I was like, we're a grass farm and everything we do is from the ground up. And that grass is so inherently important to all of it, um, to the livelihoods of the animals, to the livelihoods of us, and to the livelihoods of all the other creatures that live on our farm, which is what I'm going to get into in a little bit here. So this is a picture of our farm. When people ask farm, they usually want the farm buildings, but I don't like highlighting this is the farm. This is the structure of the farm, but really this is our farm. Um, the grasses, the animals, everything working together, the trees, um, just a really well-kept, high-quality, good grass system where we can all live together. All right, but now we're going to diverge because remember, I'm an entomologist here and I want to talk about insects. So I'm going to start the story here with this quote, and this is from E.O. Wilson, who is, I'd say, one of the, the most well-known um, entomologists worldwide. He's done so much work. So anyway, I'm just going to read this quote, um, kind of reminding us where we're at. That if all mankind were to disappear, the world would regenerate back to the rich state of equilibrium that existed 10,000 years ago. However, if insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos. And there's probably not just insects, there's a lot of other creatures out there that would probably um, change our world greatly. And it's just kind of a reminder that we as humans, we like to think we're in control of everything, but really it's, it's the rest of the world that, that runs it. We just try to keep control of things. Not always doing a great job of that. So insects, insects are vitally important. And uh, some of these you'd be more familiar with, um, some of them maybe not as much. So we're gonna pick them apart just a little bit so that you can understand better these relationships that insects have with all of us, and particularly here on a grazing farm. Pollinators. Pollinators are, you know, you think about a pollinator, most people think of the honeybee or maybe a bumblebee. Um, they've gotten a lot of popularity in recent years of, of the importance of pollinators, which is awesome that pollinators have become on the, on the forefront of our discussions on, you know, like on the health of the ecosystems. Herbivores. Herbivores are insects that eat plants. Um, and there's lots of them out there. Think about caterpillars, for example. They're eating on your plants. Some of these are the ones that we call pests. Um, I have a hard time calling any of these creatures pests on our farm because really, even though we may have caterpillars out in our pastures, a lot of times there's such a balance there between the herbivores and the predators, which comes next, that they never become a problem. It's just like the definition of a weed. A weed is a plant that you don't want in a particular place, right? But not all plants are weeds. And one example I'll give later is um, the dandelion, for example. Um, a plant that some people call weeds, but we never call them weeds on our farm. So herbivores too are those insects that may or may not be pests, um, depending on your context that you're working with. So we've got pollinators, we've got herbivores, and then we have predators, predatory insects that feed on other insects. And then we have these really important decomposers, which on a farm like ours with livestock that produce lots of 
newer um, decomposers become super important, as well as decomposing down organic matter from plants. And then insects provide a vital, vital role for food for other wildlife as well. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but thinking about this whole connection that we have with all these different organisms on the farm or on any farm, food for other wildlife. So in this picture over here, uh, we have a ladybug. Uh, ladybugs are a predatory insect uh, that will feed on a lot of other soft-bodied insects. We see a lot of them on our farm. They'll be on the flowers, out in the pastures. This one is actually feeding on the pollen on grass. Um, so they do, as well as being predators, they will feed on the vegetation that's out there. All right, so I want to delve a little bit deeper into, you know, so we know the insects are, are good and beneficial in so many different ways. Um, but kind of breaking down a little bit more some of these beneficial insects. And one of them I talked about and mentioned was the pollinators. So we've got these pollinating insects. And if, like I said, if you think of a pollinator, usually most people come up with the honeybee or a bumblebee, but there are a lot of different types of pollinators out there. Um, mostly bees, um, but there are other insects that visit plants. Um, they can be flies, there can be beetles. Any of those that visit a plant, pick up pollen, transfer the pollen to help with pollination of plants. And then we have all these predatory insects or parasitoids. We kind of lump them together here just for the sake of thinking about it's what they're eating. So if they're eating other insects, other creatures, then they're gonna be in that predatory group. So ladybugs are an example one. There are lots of different predators out there. And then there are some insects that are both predators and pollinators. Um, and so we wanna have a diversity of all of those insects out there because they're all providing specific roles um, ecosystem services, sometimes they're called, um, to, to, the whole, to the whole farm. So again, let's, if we think a little bit about insect pollinators, what's, what's really interesting is there's been a lot of research done on pollinators specifically. So we have a much better understanding of like what, what pollinators are providing to us. Um, we know that uh, a huge number of the plants rely on pollinators specifically for them to be able to reproduce. So you think about all the flowering plants that are out there. Uh, they require, a lot of them require some type of pollinator, often insects, maybe not always, but most of the time insects um, to, to be able to carry out pollination um, for reproduction. And there's an example of the bee there. You could see the honey, the pollen packets on its legs that are being carried. So as it collects the pollen, so these bees aren't doing pollination for the good of the plant. They're doing it for their own selfish reasons. They wanna collect that pollen so that they can feed their young um, that pollen. It's a great protein source. Um, so they're collecting the pollen for themselves, but in, in return, they're actually helping pollinate all the plants. And then beneficial insects, the predatory insects, as I mentioned, there's a lot of different predators out there, lady beetles, um, green lace wings, uh, ground beetles are another one. We see a lot of those on the farm. These are these black beetles here. Uh, they live down at the surface. They'll eat slugs, they'll eat worms, they'll eat other soft bodied insects that are down on the surface. A lot of them because our pasture system here with our pasture grasses, our permanent grasses, um, just create great habitat for a lot of those types of in insects. Oops, sorry about that. And so there's just a lot of different diversity out there for, for insects. And a lot of times people just aren't aware of them. You don't look at them. I know not everybody looks out across 
across a field or across an agricultural cropland and is looking specifically for the insects. Well, I, I, I do, I see them, or sometimes I, I don't see them, which is sometimes the concern. So this is a picture, I'm just kind of showing some of that diversity of like when things kind of come together. Um, this is a picture from our pasture. What is this here? What do you, what do you see on that, that plant? Or what is that plant? Um, well, that plant is alfalfa, which we do have in our pastures, it's blooming and we have a bumblebee on it. And as you can see in the background here, the cows are blurred out because of the, the focal point of the, this uh, photo, but they are there. So this is a working pasture and we've got the bees on it. We've got the flowers on it. We've got diversity here. And that's what's really key is if we didn't have that diversity, we didn't have these flowers here, we wouldn't have the pollinators there. Flowers need the pollinators, the pollinators need the flowers. Um, the cows need the grasses and the other vegetation. So again, everything is there for a reason and we want to have them all present to have this healthy system. So here's a question for you. Um, in thinking about pollinators in particular, um, diversity is key. It's really important to have all this diversity. And we have a lot of diversity of, of, of pollinators in Wisconsin, but does anybody know what's the estimated number of bee species in Wisconsin? You don't have to write in the chat or anything, just, just think about it. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the answer here in a sec. Like I said, a lot of people think about honeybees, they think about bumblebees, what else? A few species. Uh, well, we actually have an estimated number of 400 different bee species here in Wisconsin, 400. And while there's a lot of research that's done on the honeybees, which isn't even a native bee, I'll add, um, and the bumblebees, a lot of those other species of bees we know very, very little about. There's not a lot of research that has been on them, done on them, and there's also probably a lot of bee species that we don't even know about yet. Um, so, but 400, that's a lot. When I first heard that number, I was, I was shocked because it's, it, it's huge. And in the United States altogether, there's about an estimated 3,600 different species of bees in the United States. A lot of different bees. All right, so I live on a grazing farm. And if you have a, a farm with livestock on it, you're inevitably gonna get this. This is cow poop. It's a lovely cow patty. Um, and one of the vital insect groups that we have to have on this are decomposers. Because if we don't have decomposers out there, then all that cow poop that's laid across the landscape, which is a great source of fertilizer and things, it needs to be broken down though. Um, and Otherwise it can smother out the pasture grasses that are present there, which the cows need. Um, so we need to have this really healthy system where the cow patties that are laid by the cows that help fertilize the soil needs to be broken down in a fast enough manner to be able to keep that whole system going. And key to that is the insects. So on this picture, you can see there are, there's a couple groups here. There are some flies. We've got a dung fly here. Um, this looks like it might be a blow fly. And then we also have these little holes that are up over here in, in the dung. And if, if you've ever heard about dung beetles, um, they're the ones doing a lot of the magic here. So the dung beetles live in the patties. And if I had taken a video of this, we'd probably see one pop up, crawl across the surface and pop back down into another hole um, while we're staring at a fresh patty. They can break down these patties within um, sometimes hours if the, if the temperature is right, but usually over a couple of days. 
Um, and they're just amazing. And it, it's a sign of a really healthy ecosystem to have these dung beetles out on the landscape. Like you have to have them. And that's one of the challenges is when you're taking care of animals um, and thinking about like, how do you, what kind of medications do they get? Um, treatment sometimes for flies or insecticides that the, the animals are given for fly control can sometimes disrupt this cycle of, of and affect the life cycles of the dung beetles and then you have decreased populations in the in the pastures. Um, we as an organic farm we don't use any of those products and we have a pretty healthy healthy um, dung beetle population. Unfortunately I wish that we had some of the dung beetle the roller populations. Um, if you've ever seen pictures of those of the beetles that actually make balls of dung um, and then they roll them away. We don't have those particular species in our area of Wisconsin unfortunately so if some of you do I'm I'm very jealous. <laughs> All right, so insects are really important. Um, whether you're on a farm or not, they're, they're important all across agriculture. They're very important in natural ecosystems. Um, but one of the challenges that has been um, coming up is a, more and more research showing this decline of insects, decline of biodiversity overall, but one of the specific groups is, is insects. Um, this is one study that was done, it came out in 2017, and why this one was interesting in particular was because it was done in, in nature preserves, so natural areas where you'd think that the general insect populations wouldn't be affected. Um, and this research showed that there was a decline by 76% of insect biomass overall, over a 20-year period. So it's a very short period of time, a big impact. Um, and this study, there's, there's been a number of other ones as well, just kind of documenting in different places. There's one that came out of Costa Rica as well, um, and, and all over the world showing these challenges that we're seeing with insects. Um, and what's causing them? Well, it's not one particular reason. It's lack of habitat, loss of habitat, um, pesticides, climate changes, there's a lot of different factors. And because insects are so diverse and live in so many different types of habitats and niches and things like that, it's really hard to be able to say it's one or the other because what impacts one species uh, may or may not impact another one. But overall, those number of, of insects is, is, it seems to be declining. So I'm gonna talk about, we, we did talk about a little bit about the pollinators, but I want to specifically touch on some of my favorites and because they're ones that I see here on the farm a lot. And these are the bumblebees. So this is the brown belted bumblebee. This is one that I found and you can see that it's feeding on red clover. Um, red clover is one of our go-to plants. It's a, it's a nitrogen fixer. It's a legume, really a favorite plant for the cows to eat um, and a favorite too for the bumblebees. And so, I got really interested in bumblebees when I was working for the Xerxes Society, um, which is an invertebrate conservation organization, um, because they were doing a lot of studies on bumblebees across the United States. And what they were seeing was these declines in, in bumblebees because there are species that we can see, we can find. And they found is a lot of the bumblebee species are, are in a very concerning um, a place. Um, and, and, and so it got me interested in thinking like, well, what do I have here? I don't even know what our bumblebee species are. Pollinators weren't my thing per se. Remember, I'm, I specialize in pest management. Um, so I got really interested in wanting to see what we had on our farm. 
And so I did my own on-farm bumblebee diversity study, and this is something anybody can do. Um, it's a citizen science project here in Wisconsin. And you go out and you survey what bees you have. And what I found was that I had in one summer, one week, I found five different species of bumblebees on our farm. And five different species, that's 25% of all the species that we have here in Wisconsin. And I was just shocked that in our pastures, I could find this. Um, and so it was just emphasized to me, me as an entomologist, that if you get out and look and you, and you start observing things, you will see things more. A lot of times people don't know that they exist because you never looked. Well, it's just like me, I, I never looked, so I didn't, I didn't know. Um, so it was just really amazing to see that diversity. And since then, when I, when I go to other grazing farms, I'll often point out the bumblebees that are out there. And sometimes they're pretty rare species. Uh, one of them we do have in our area is the rusty patched bumblebee. Um, and if you're not familiar, the rusty patched bumblebee is the first bumblebee species that was listed on the endangered species list in North America. And we have, we're lucky enough here in Wisconsin, especially in Southern Wisconsin and up in like the Twin Cities area, Minnesota to have a pretty prevalent populations of them. Not everywhere, um, but they are there. And so I'm always looking to see that I have that because I would love to be able to say that I have uh, an endangered bumblebee species on our pasture, in our pastures, but I haven't found that yet, unfortunately. Um, maybe someday. My neighbors have it. So I just wanted to point out that in Wisconsin here, we have this citizen science project called the Bumblebee Brigade. There's also Bumblebee Watch, which is nationwide. But the Bumblebee Brigade is one that you can, you can go online and join and you can track your bumblebees. And it helps inform all these scientists that are doing work to try and understand better our bumblebee populations here. And yeah, so you get to observe, you get to learn, you get to help out some scientists as well. So that's what I did with all this information is I share that with them so they have that information and to better understand Wisconsin bumblebee populations. Now, another insect that I wanna highlight because this is another charismatic one that I see on the farm all the time. I see it on a lot of other people's farms is the monarch butterfly. And if you're from Wisconsin, I'm sure you're familiar with it. In fact, it's, it's very well known across most of the United States. Um, and we see it in our pastures a lot. Uh, they're feeding often on the legume flowers. So this case, this photo here, they're, they're feeding on red clovers. They'll feed on the um, pretty much any of the clovers as well as alfalfa. And they're just, they're a beautiful insect, but just like a lot of other insect species, they, they're challenged as well. Uh, monarch butterfly population numbers have declined a lot um, over the last several decades, like 90% decline. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to the overwintering grounds down in, in the mountains of Mexico to see where the monarchs that reproduce here go in the winter time. And that was a phenomenal experience. And coming back from that, it's really reminded me how important it is that when we see these butterflies here, that we create the habitat that they need um, to, to be able to support them. They are pollinators, not like the bees are, but they do visit flowers and they can carry some pollen around. And they're just one of those really important insects to have because they're so iconic. We recognize them and to have them disappear from the landscape would be really unfortunate. So we try to do what we can to help. And so here's another picture of them visiting with the cows in the background. This is something we often see is that the butterflies are out there feeding alongside the grazing cattle. 
and this is another interesting um, incident that I that I often have here on the farm. Um, does anybody recognize what this plant is that this cow is standing next to? All right, well, since we're talking about the monarch butterfly, um, you may recognize it as milkweed. So this is the common milkweed. And if you don't know, the monarch butterfly has to lay its eggs on milkweed plant. It doesn't have to necessarily be this particular species, but it has to be on a milkweed plant. And that is the only plant that their, their young, their caterpillar can feed on. It is a toxic plant. Um, it, is, it is one that a lot of other plant animals cannot eat or can make them sick. Um, and so because of that, the, the caterpillars of the monarch butterfly are very brilliant colored and bright colored and it's their warning system to say, don't eat me, I have, I have compounds in me that will make you sick, just like what the plant has. So the milkweed is necessary for the monarch butterfly but it's also a toxic plant for livestock. So this is a question I often get asked is, it was like, well, you have all this diversity on your farm, including milkweed, is that harmful to your livestock? And here's what I say, or in this case, I will show you, is this is what we often see happen, is yes, we have these plants which are toxic and if the cows ate a lot of it, they would get sick and they could get sick and, and people do have livestock they lose to um, milkweed toxins. Usually it's down south because we're fortunate here in Wisconsin that our milkweeds are not as toxic. If you live down in Texas, for example, some of the species down there are highly toxic and, and, and there's just there's not a lot of flexibility there for an animal to eat it without getting sick. But on our farm, this is what often happens. The cows take a bite of it and they realize that it tastes really bad and they spit it out. And I've seen this multiple times where I'll see the milkweed strewn across the pasture where maybe it's a young heifer or a calf or somebody that has never tried it before. You think of it like a kid. You give a kid something that they don't like, like give them Brussels sprouts or something and they don't like it, what do they probably do? They spit it out. I shouldn't say that Brussels sprouts because Brussels, Brussels sprouts can be really good. But anyway, just an example there. So in this situation here, our cows don't eat it. And I attribute it to also because we provide them really high quality grass, good grass, pasture grasses that give them the choice to eat the good stuff versus the bad stuff. And they will choose the good stuff. Do they try? Absolutely, you can see that they do. Um, but over here on the left side, 66, she didn't touch that at all. And you can see even this one, is in flower. So it's going to be blooming very soon. So the cows have just left it alone. Um, so this is just kind of one of those situations where yes, we're grazing, we feed our animals, but we're also feeding wildlife in a different way. And we allow that milkweed to be out there. Um, you know, maybe in some situations where you do have other species that are toxic, you wouldn't want to have it, you'd want to get rid of it. But, but we're totally okay with that. And our cows don't bother it. And we get to see the monarch butterflies then because of it. All right, so here's another picture that's, that's really important. And I, I, I mentioned earlier how the definition of what's a pest or what's a weed is really in the eye of the beholder. This 
is our fields in summer, springtime, like in the end of May, beginning of June, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that, of dandelions. And dandelions are, we sometimes call them the ice cream to the cow world. Uh, they only get them, uh, the flowers only come out early in the spring, but cows love them. So even though this plant in some situations might be called the bane of somebody's existence, for example, on a lawn, people may not want them. Um, we feel that diversity is really key here. And it's diversity for the soil health, diversity for the pastures, diversity is important for our animals and what they're consuming because you are what you eat. So, you know, eating diverse foods is always really good for us too, cows, same thing. Um, and then there's another piece here though, is that these are flowers, right? So it's not just for the livestock out here, um, but also for bees and pollinators. Uh, one of the earliest blooming plants that we have on the farm is dandelions. And so in the springtime, when the dandelions come into bloom, it's where I will often see the first bumblebees feeding because there isn't much else in bloom. So this bumblebee on this dandelion here, that was probably taken, uh, I think it was the end of March or early May even, or sorry, end of March, early April. Um, this was one of the first ones. This wasn't out in the pasture. This was in front of my house, but that's where the bee came. That's the queen, that's a queen bee. She comes out of hibernation. She has to find food to start up her nest and there she is feeding on it. So that's where that diversity within your pastures becomes really important um, to support the pollinators, which we want to have out there as well. All right. Okay. So one of the key things here, we're trying to support pollinators, trying to support wildlife, try, trying to support any of these other organisms on our farm, in addition to livestock, is habitat. And habitat is key to, to providing for that. And while we do have pastures that are for the cows, for them to graze on, we do have spots on our farm. We create specific habitat for other organisms. And in my case, because I'm really interested in insects, it happens to be insect habitat. So this is a pollinator planting that we put in on our farm. It's a half an acre. Um, and actually you can see here, we did it one year, we did a quarter acre at our time. So on the left here is the first year, or I should say second year of the pollinator. And then on the right here is one year younger. So there's, there's a little difference there in their development. Now, this was taken a few years ago. Now they pretty much look the same, but that's where if we really wanna support these creatures and organisms. We gotta make sure that there's habitat for them. And so this is, this is our particular way um, to do it. I also have habitat spots like this of native flower plantings on our farmstead as well. All right, so I wanted to talk about some of the other creatures on the farm. I, I love insects, but I recognize they're not the only things that live on the farm besides our livestock. And one of them is, is birds. So birds are all over our farm. They're on most farms. They're probably around your house as well. And, and just like the insects, there has been uh, a huge observed decline in the number of birds across the United States. Um, 2.9 billion birds have disappeared since 1970, according to all the studies that have been done tracking this information that comes from like bird counts and things like that across the country. 
um, that's a that's a really really steep decline, um, and you just don't see as many. And a lot of times, once they disappear, you don't really notice it. It just kind of becomes quieter. Um, and one of the things that really one of the groups of birds that really has been impacted by this is grassland birds. Grassland birds. Um, I when I was growing up, I don't think I ever. I saw very few grassland birds. Our farm was not a pasture grazing farm when I grew up. Um, it was, it was, you know, crops, it was dairy farm. We, we didn't have the habitat to support any grassland birds. Um, and now we do. And it's been really amazing to be able to see that when we create these spaces for these organisms that they come back, they're able to, to exist. So you create the habitat, sometimes they will come, <laughs> I guess. This is a picture of our pasture. It's not very pretty, but what it is, is it was left to go. So there's kind of a line here in the middle. And on the left side, you can see it's, it's not as brown looking because the cows were allowed to graze it off. But on the right side here, it was just allowed to go for June and for July so that we could let the grassland birds nest in there. And in particular, these are for the bobolinks. And I apologize, I just realized I don't have a photo in here of the bobolink, but the bobolink is a beautiful, the males in particular, a beautiful black and white bird um, that live in these grassland areas. And the bobolink is one that has a beautiful song. Uh, the males are black and white. And I'm gonna see if I can play this song for you. Uh, this is a recording that I did in our pastures last year. I, I, I don't know if it's gonna work, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna just give it a try here. And if nothing else, you got to see the, the birds flying across this. So the bobolinks only nest in these grassland areas. Um, I have given talks at garden clubs and things in our area, and I have had a lot of people tell me that they have never seen a bobolink. Like they live in the same county as me. They're like, we don't have bobolinks here. And I was like, oh, I challenge you because I was like, if you come out to my farm, we have got them there in the summertime. The, the males are singing their song, the females are, are nesting in there, but the key is to have that habitat. And the other key here is to have habitat that isn't disrupted as much. So we try to um, give some space to the bobolinks. Um, we do also have to manage that, that balance of grazing and conservation. So sometimes we can't give them as much as we'd want to of letting pasture go because we need to have enough, um, we have to have enough acres to be able to graze all of our animals on. but they come every spring or every summer and we do get to see them and it's it's, it's amazing and I, I really appreciate being able to have that habitat um, to support these. The bobolinks travel all the way down to central South America so to know that their home here in the summertime is our farm and then they disappear and go all the way down to another continent is just an amazing story. And you know, here's my cow ninja of living in the same kind of habitat that the, the bobolinks are in and, and what they love, that we can kind of hopefully try and work together so we can have space for both the creatures. All right, I'm gonna change the directions here just a little bit now. I want you to take, take a second and think about your most favorite tree that you have, wherever that may be. 
and what that tree is maybe. Uh, everybody's got a special tree somewhere um, that just evokes a lot of memories or just is special in some way. Well, I'm gonna share with you my tree and that's my tree in this picture here. Uh, this is a bur oak that is hundreds of years old. Um, and it also happens to be in the middle of one of our pastures. Somebody somewhere did not cut it down. And so it's been left in the middle of this field. And it has become a place where the cows love to be under it in the summertime. My kids have played out there. I played underneath it when I was growing up. Um, just like emotionally, it's just been a special tree for me. And, and it is for our farm as well. It's on all my business cards. I use it on all of our marketing material as well because it's just, it's just beautiful. But this tree and most trees, especially if you picked a native tree, are hugely valuable in other ways as well. Not just for the livestock, not just for the humans. The oak tree in particular is one of the most ecologically valuable trees because it hosts, it can be the host for hundreds of different species of insects. And you could find on this tree alone, hundreds of different caterpillars on there. And why is that important? You're like, oh, well, all these caterpillars are just gonna eat the tree up. Well, they're not actually gonna eat all the tree, eat the tree up. Um, remember, there's the balance here that's going on. So there's probably predators that are feeding on them as well. So everything becomes in check. And one of the predators that eats a lot of the caterpillars that comes from an oak tree are birds. So let's think back to that bobolink that I was just talking about, or pretty much any grassland bird or most birds for that matter. Um, when they have their young, one of the best food sources that they can feed their young is caterpillars. Because caterpillars are a great protein source and allow the young to be able to develop faster so they can get up and, and fly and be able to get, you know, move around quicker. Caterpillars. Um, it's been estimated that, so this is for a particular chickadee and it exists down south, but um, one, one young chickadee can take up to 8,000 caterpillars that need to be fed to it by its parents in order for it to survive to adulthood. So then you think about that, if one bird needs 8,000 caterpillars and you have lots of different birds out there that all need caterpillars or other insects to, to be fed to them. And then you have a tree like the oak tree that can produce hundreds, if not thousands of caterpillars on it. You can see how important it is then to have this diversity to be able to support the the birds that are out there um, and the birds that need the insects and we need these trees. It's just this huge complicated system. So we've really taken it upon ourselves to try and get a lot of diversity of trees out there as well um, to support the insect populations that support the grassland bird species that support our well-being and health so that we can be able to enjoy them all and then send all the birds back down to Central America so other people can enjoy them. But it's not just oak trees. Um, oaks, poplars, willows, cherries in particular are some of the most valuable trees for supporting insect communities on them. Um, there's also, you know, hickories, chestnuts, cedars also. So thinking about that, when you look at a grazing farm or pretty much any farm, you know, are there trees around that are supporting that whole ecological system that we want to have? 
um, as well. It's, it's, it's all interconnected. It's very complicated, but it's also very interesting. All right, I'm going to keep moving here because I, I realized you were getting close to time. Um, my question here is like, why do I do this all? Like, why do I pay attention to this? Why do we have our grazing farm? And yes, so we, we run a farm, it's our business. Um, we make an income off of, off of it. So it behooves us to have good pastures, to have good livestock that are healthy that we could sell. But ultimately a lot of it, and the reason we do it, the reason I came back to the farm is because of this face right here. These are my kids. He's a little older than that now, but I wanted them to know what their roots were, where they come from, how their food is raised, and give them a space to be able to really thrive um, and learn and understand like where I came from, where his family comes from, and, and, and just so much, so much opportunity for growth and, and benefits for their own well-being. And give them opportunities like this to be able to play with cows and, and to become one with them. My kids totally take for granted living here, being able to touch a cow, being able to pick up a chicken. They just want to move to the city where they have sidewalks. I know this because that's what they tell me on a daily basis. Um, but but I know that some point when they grow up and leave, that there will be something left behind that they'll take with them. Because I know, because that's the same thing that happened to me is I left, I left the farm for 18 years. And then I realized that, you know what, growing up on a farm wasn't so bad, um, that there was a lot there that we learned, that I gleaned, that, was, that I was able to take with me. And well, now I find myself back here. So those human benefits of living on this farm, of being outside, having my kids be close to nature, understanding how things grow, where things come from, um, not necessarily have to like all of it, but appreciate it and understand it. I do a lot of education with kids as well. And believe me, that those experiences of being outside are just hugely, hugely valuable um, for, for their personal well-being um, and, and for growth and learning as well. So many benefits there. So I'm just going to wrap this up really quickly here. There's so many different directions I could have taken this today, but I just want to focus on how diversity is key. And, and I'm not just talking about diversity, you know, the pastures and things like that. We, we do, we want to have that really important pasture land. Our diversity is there to support our animals. Diversity of what they eat is important for their health, but also diversity in terms of like what we're doing on the farm to support wildlife overall, what we're doing on the farm to be able to support ourselves. Um, we, we've diversified our farm incomes to, to make it easier to be a farmer. Um, you know, we don't just sell milk, we sell beef, we sell chickens, we sell eggs. We try to diversify out what we have here to make the whole system work for us. And that's why the grazing has been so important is, is it gives us a lot of pretty easy ways to be able to do a lot of different things um, that, that work well for us. And diversity also creates resiliency. Um, remember I mentioned that that oak tree was my favorite tree? Well, sometimes we have challenges come our way that we're not expecting. We wanna be able to be resilient and to survive and thrive. I lost my oak tree a couple of years ago. It came down in a storm. Everybody in our neighborhood knew about it. It was really challenging. And I knew not just that it was this beautiful oak tree that was now gone, it was, it was a place that was supporting a huge amount of insects, supporting our grassland birds. It was really hard to take. Um, 
But I've also recognized that if you're resilient, if you can build from the ground up, that when these challenges come, there's ways to move forward with it. We've since planted tons of other trees. I will never see an oak tree that gets this big in my lifetime, obviously, but we've planted a couple oak trees. We've planted a bunch of poplars on the farm this past year in hopes that it'll create a new shade for the cows, create new places for us to play or future kids on the farm to be able to go. Diversity creates resiliency. There's a lot of challenges that come to farming. There's a lot of challenges coming in terms of changing weather, we want to have resiliency. We want to have a place that allows us to be able to survive and thrive. And that's where grazing has been the answer for us. Um, to be resilient, to be able to survive, to be a small farm run with just me, my husband, and our two kids, and, and we can make it work. So I really appreciate um, being able to share part of this journey with you today. Um, I just want to highlight some of these. These are the many benefits of grazing. There's so many we didn't even get into. A lot of these are the very common ones, nutrient cycling, carbon, air, soil health quality. But the other benefits, like I did mention, habitat for grassland birds, support beneficial insects, increase plant diversity, and then the health of ourselves, our livestock. Um, so many benefits that we get from grazing. So I really appreciate being able to share, to share this with you today and Thank you. Um, again, a lot of these photos are from me. They're all taken on our farm. I really appreciate this. And I am so happy to take whatever questions may come my way, or if you just got comments and things too. Thank you so much, Dr. Heidel Baker. Uh, that was wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you and, and everybody else here. Um, we already have a few questions in the chat. Um, the first one is uh, from Ali Bergstrom. So I said this at the beginning, but um, I'll say it again. If you have a question in the chat, I'll ask that you, um, or I'll call on you in line so that you can ask your question um, yourself. So I'll invite Ali Bergstrom to contribute now. And if Ali isn't available to say their question, I can um, relay it here. So the question from Ali is, do the decomposing insects have specific habitat requirements that may be negatively impacted by a poorly managed grazing system? Um, yes. <laughs> so yes, the, any of those, the decomposers, and there's lots of decomposers, at least when we're talking about the insects. There's, and then there's all kinds of other decomposers as well. I mean, think about earthworms and things like that. So they have really specific, every, every, I'd say almost every organism, every insect out there has its own habitat. Um, and that's what makes insects so interesting and so challenging too, is because they all have their specific place, because if they all had the exact same role, then it wouldn't work as well. Um, so yes, they have different specific spaces. Um, and so the management of the farm, yes, it does make a big difference on, on having the success of the decomposers. So one of the things to think about, especially if you're thinking about like the, the dung beetles in particular, like there are whole, there are whole groups of, of people that look at dung beetles and try to bring dung beetles back to their farm because they're missing that particular group of insects to help break down their dung beetles. So then sometimes you, when you don't have the populations there, we have to ask, why don't you have them there? Is it because they just, they have been wiped out for so long? They're, you know, 
they, they don't, they didn't have their habitat there. Or sometimes the, the question is like, how do you manage your animals and, and thinking about like, what are the, what are the pesticide applications that you're giving to your animals? Um, things like dewormers and things like that, that are, that are meant to kill internal parasites when you give them to the animals. And this isn't my expertise area because I, I, I haven't, um, the animal pests themselves, but when you do give those to an animal and then they, and it comes out in their manure out in the fields, um, you know, that is a chemical that's designed to kill those parasites and it's in the poop and it can impact the dung beetle populations. Um, and so sometimes we have to back up a little bit to say like, why is it that you don't have them on your farm? Let's make sure that's not the underlying cause before we move forward. Um, and then other issues with like our decomposers is things like overgrazing, for example, that if you are grazing on your farm um, and the pastures are consistently getting overgrazed uh, where, you know, there's hardly anything there. Like you can see in this photo here, we, we rotationally graze our animals. They're moved once, twice a day. We have really lush pastures. I understand that. Um, but if you left the animals out in that pasture, you know, and didn't rotationally graze them, didn't move them around a lot, the, graze, the grasses get all grazed all the way down, sometimes just right down to the soil, um, you're disrupting that habitat there for a lot of organisms, including the decomposers, where they just don't have as much um, to work with. A lot of the decomposers also need, if we're not talking about poop, they just want that organic matter from the vegetation itself. So if you don't have vegetation there, then you don't have the food that's going to even support those decomposers. So, so again, that ends up being like this cycle where you don't have enough food for them. So you, they can't be there and they can't be there because they, they're not getting food. So yeah, you want to have well-managed pastures um, that be able to provide for everybody, the livestock and for the decomposers. Thank you. That was a great answer to that question and, and something I'm really just personally interested in as well as how does grazing management, different types of grazing management, how do they affect insect communities and uh, as a whole, but you know, specific species as well. Um, so I'd love to talk to you more about that soon too. Um, but we have a, a few more questions here that I definitely want to make sure we get to. So um, next one is from Lisa Kardash. Is that I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong too, but if you'd like to unmute and say your question, um, I invite you to do so now if you're able. That's accurate for my pronunciation. Um, so I'm curious, do you use grazing as a site preparation tool to suppress grass and litter removal prior to doing your pollinator plantings? And have you utilized grazing for post-seeding grass and weed control as well on the plantings? And I'm just curious if you can provide details on that and any of the successes and challenges that you've had. Yeah, well, great question. Thanks, Lisa. So I have not um, used grazing per se as a site prep for like pollinator plantings. Um, the, the site that we, we did that pollinator planting on was at my parents' farm and they didn't have that fenced in for grazing. So it wasn't an option to do. That's actually why we ended up picking that place because it wasn't, it was far enough away. We weren't gonna be grazing it. So they're like, well, let's just take that out of hay production because that's what it was used for. So that was done with, more conventional tillage and things like that to, to um, prep it. Um, but, but I have thought a lot about that question of like, can we use grazing as a, a site prep method? And I have tried out here to um, heavily graze an area and then 
plant in um, native wildflowers into some of our pastures. Cause I, I was curious to see, I was like, can I find the right species of natives that maybe could work in our cool season grass pastures? Um, I had 0% success in that, but, but I did try. But one of the things, and one of the reasons why we do have a diversity of animals on the farm is um, you saw that I do raise pastured pigs, right? So the pigs, do work really well for a site prep because the pigs that we have do root up, they work up an area. And, and that was part of the reason initially that we, that we kind of got them. And I started putting them in certain pasture areas because I was using them to not so much site prep for plantings, but to actually try and get rid of uh, um, Canada thistle. Because we, you know, are, we're an organic farm, so we can't put herbicides out for them. But we do have some areas where we had Canada thistle coming in, and so I wanted to see if I could use the pigs as a way to get rid of them. Because the pigs like to root; they like to eat up the roots in particular. And the Canada thistle, being rhizominous under the ground, there, like maybe they would eat those up. And the one area where we did do them, I can't say it got rid of it, but it definitely pushed it back a little bit, um, which I'd say is a success is a big success on it and our farm at least because it's um like i said we don't have a lot of options for controlling canada thistle other than trying to outcompete it uh, with other plants thanks so much for the um question lisa and for your answer dr heidel baker we have um more questions in the chat here um one from Kelly Martinson. Kelly, if you're able to, um, I invite you to say your question. Thank you. That was a really great presentation. So I apologize if this is a little off topic um, because it's not really in Wisconsin, but in the Southern US, uh, invasive red imported fire ants are really destructive to native insect populations. And I was just wondering if you know anything about um, the research, if you have any input as an entomologist and a farmer about the strategy of using like a mass aerially applied ant insecticide such as Extinguish Plus to an entire cattle ranch um, in order to improve insect biodiversity um, to promote grassland birds. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So they're trying to control the red fire ants because they're, because they're, um, well, a, a, like a pest species, but then also using that to try and actually increase the diversity. Is, is that correct? Or is it because the, the fire ants are eating the weed seeds? I'm not. Yeah, it's, it's because the fire ants are preying on both the native insects as well as grassland chicks and nests. Okay. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, it's a little off topic. It's okay if you don't know, just while I have the attention of an entomologist, I was curious. Yeah, no, that's, it's interesting. Yeah, I haven't worked too much with the fire ants, um, but um, anytime, yeah, anytime. So if you're trying to increase diversity, you know, with, it, it's kind of, it, like an invasive species. Um, like, what do you do to control an invasive species so that you can increase the biodiversity overall? And we have those same problems up here with plants and, and with some insects as, as well. Um, I'd always be, I don't know what the insecticides are that they would use to control the fire ant. So my questions on that would be thinking about like, so what are those pesticides? What is their residual? How long do they last in the environment, for example, um, before you'd want to, or would be able to, to plant something in there to support more biodiversity? 
um, because there are there are insecticides that can last for you know days, weeks, months, even years in a system before they break down um, that could have potential long-term impacts on, on on the beneficial organisms. So that would be one of the first things that I would think about. Um, like I said, I don't know exactly what they use out there for for the fire ant, and we're fortunate that we don't have that issue up here. Um, but yeah, I and I. I'm sure somebody is doing work on that down there because it is a big enough problem. Um, but I, I don't have the specifics on that other than just those thoughts. Thanks, that's a, a great question. And um, I think can could spur a lot uh, more conversation. Just doing a quick Google search myself. And again, I'm just an entomology student and don't um, uh, study this either. But um, it looked like the pesticide you were talking about is Extinguish Plus, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And that uh, active ingredient is, um, it's a variant of methoprene, I guess. Um, okay. So this is a, a juvenile hormone analog, um, which is, I mean, it'll affect more than just ants, that's for sure. Um, uh, I don't know if they're saying it'll only affect ants, but um, there's a few studies on, on honeybees and this, this type of pesticide, which is just one of the active ingredients in, in that brand. So I don't know, I would definitely, uh, if, from a quick Google search, caution you from using that. Um, but um, yeah. I'm happy to talk about it more, or send you some research articles. <laughs> Thank yeah, you so much. That would be definitely something to look into. And, and maybe the answer would be not to do it across an entire area all at one time um, to try things, you know, do a quarter, do a third. I, I always hesitate if you're trying to apply something to do it across an entire area all at, all at once because you may have really long-term impacts. And like Sky mentioned, you know, it is an insecticide. It's not really specific. So I don't know what other biodiversity are there um, out there, but you know, I'm often integrated pest management applies to a lot of different area, things. And in that case, like, would you identify, instead of doing it across the entire area, identify the areas that are highest risk with the most populations of uh, um, ants instead of trying to just blanket across the entire ranch or farm. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And um, I'm sure you can you can speak to a lot of the types of things that are used in, in organic, the types of pesticides um, that are used in organic that, um, yeah, may, may differ from, or um, men probably do differ from what's used in uh, some conventional agriculture and grazing management. Um, and um, I, so I suppose um, we have a couple more questions here. One from One Buzz Sorge, if you are there um, and would like to say your question, you may do so now. If not, I'm happy to relay. Um, the question is, how do you feel the resiliency or uh, for you and your farm has impacted the resiliency? I'm pretty sure it's of you and your farm has impacted the resiliency of your rural community. So kind of a broader question here regarding um, your resiliency on farm and then how that's impacted resiliency of your rural community. Yeah, so one of the, yeah, that's, that's a bigger question, but I do like it um, because I think a lot about our 
my community here where we live and in terms of I like as I've mentioned I I've, I've, I've done education. I've worked for nature centers where I was teaching kids. We've had lots of farm visitors come out to the farm. And I often view that a lot of them have never been to a grazing farm. So I like to give them that opportunity to come out and see firsthand what a grazing farm is like. And sometimes it's not even a grazing farm. Sometimes it's just having seen a farm at all. Um, so, you know, we've had neighbors come over. We've had school groups come over. We've had whoever, if I could do it full time, I would, but I can't. <laughs> um, but to give them that opportunity. And when when we get local people to be, to see how the farm works um, and and see where, in our case, like where their food comes from and understand how it's raised, it gives them um, an appreciation for what we do, as well as uh, just better understanding how, how food is raised and grown and done and the options that they have out there to understand uh, you know, what agriculture is like and that there's not just one way to do it. Um, there's not just one place that your beef comes from or one way that your eggs come from or that it has to come from a grocery store. So in terms of that resiliency, I mean, we have on our farm here really increased and because since, uh, for example, COVID started at the beginning of 2020, um, we've partnered with a lot of farms in our area to start an online um, farmer's market. Um, and that has really increased our resiliency on the farm because we have become not just a, a source for local food, but we've, we've become kind of a leader in the area for where to get things from. And now we have other farms that come to us and are like, how do you do this? Um, you know, so I was saying, I was like, my talk today is about good grass. And I was like, the good grass is more than just supporting wildlife or supporting the livestock. It has to support us as well. And so if we can have this farm that supports us and we don't have to worry anymore about the cows and what their care is like, which is, which is where we're at, um, like we don't, we don't have a lot of health problems with our cows and we don't have a lot of health problems with our chickens. And you know what that means? That means that I can go do other things or my husband can focus on other things and we can improve other areas of the farm. So it creates a resiliency and hopefully in the more long-term. And it allows us to also take on projects that are outside of the farm to be able to hold, support our whole community. Um, yeah. Hopefully that's, a, that's, that's, yeah, hopefully that helps. <laughs> Yeah, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, kind of related to what we were just talking about previously, um, related to pesticides, um, Dory Decker has a question um, about neonicotinoids. Um, Dory, are you there and able to say your question out loud? I am. Thank you. And again, sorry for this being a little bit off topic, but uh, when the opportunity arises, why not ask? <laughs> So I'm curious if you see any developments on the horizon for pollinator friendly alternatives to neonicotinoids being that they are just so widely used right now. Yeah, so for those that aren't familiar, neonicotinoids are a group of insecticides um, that have become really, really prevalent um, and used like almost like an insurance policy in a lot of places. Um, they have a very long residual, which means they're effective for a very long period of time and they don't break down very well in the environment, uh, which makes them really effective as an insecticide. Um, but there's been a lot of non-target um, impacts that have been shown to pollinators, to bees, to monarch butterflies, for example, as well. Um, and so 
they have raised some concerns because uh, like I think anytime there's an insecticide that's used across the landscape, you know, like we talk about the, the, the um, fire ants, you know, you don't, you don't want to put an insecticide across the landscape, but these neonicotinoids are used really prevalently in a lot of places and a lot of crops. Um, as for alternatives for them, I guess my first place is always, do we need to use them in the first place? Um, is, you know, I'm a firm believer in integrated pest management or IPM. And the first one is like only use pesticides where they're really needed. And a lot of the neonicotinoids are not used when they're needed. They're used as a preventative or an insurance policy. Um, so that's one of the big challenges right there is, is just trying to minimize the use for it for when it's needed. Um, I, I don't know what's in the pipeline for necessarily alternatives on that because I'm not in that world. If you're looking for insecticides and pesticides, um, but thinking about what we have here and, and, and using it only on an as needed basis becomes, I think, I think really, really, really important. Is there something in particular, Dory, that you were thinking about with neonicotinoids? I guess my, my focus is a little bit more on greenhouses and okay. trying to sustain local greenhouses. And, you know, if, if folks are feeling like they need an insecticide, preferably something more targeted, targeted is something you know, maybe there's news about something coming out that that is, you know, a little bit more friendly across the board for insects and targets them more specifically for who they need to target. But yeah, so that's a little bit more of the, okay. the focus that I was thinking of, but. Well, one of the things, so greenhouses are an enclosed environment. So, which is actually sometimes really good for uh, pest management because you can do things in a greenhouse that you can't do in an open crop field. Um, for example. So I would suggest or I would look into biological controls using uh, predatory insects, depending on what the pests are. So first you always want to know what pests are in the greenhouse and then look into what are the beneficial insects that can be used to actually help manage like an inside biocontrol system. Um, and they've, I, I don't know specifically what pests you're working with, but uh, there are some really effective beneficial insects. And there are lots of different companies out there that will sell them to you to use. And, and like I said, in a greenhouse, because it's closed in, um, you could do a lot of other things. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Great. It's great to hear that there are folks tuning in from um, different perspectives too on farms and, and, um, yeah, it really just shows the, um, the variety of different, uh, different management methods that you can do with IPM too um, in different settings. So we have a question from Kelly Van Beek um, and just asking, can you talk more about the trade-offs economically and ecologically for resting pastures in order to accommodate grassland birds? That undisturbed period is absolutely critical for some species like the bobolink in order to prevent trampling pressure during nesting season while also providing the appropriate grass structure for nesting. Yeah, there's some research, there have been several research studies that have done out of UW-Madison that have specifically addressed this. I am, I'm not an expert on the, um, the, the nesting seasons and exactly which ones are the best um, to do to support these grassland birds. I can only speak from my experience here, but yes, it is, it's absolutely critical that you have a resting period. And I think it's usually up until 
ideally to the end of July, if not mid-July, where you just let those areas go where you don't have the cows graze them. So if you, if you can um, let five, even 10 acres go, I think sometimes you do want to, say, it, there needs to be a minimum size. Otherwise the birds don't want to use it. I think it's, it's, I think it's like, I want to say five acres, um, but look into, we'll have to look into the specifics of that. So minimum space and then not have it disturbed with um, cattle grazing. And that has been one of the challenges on our farm because we have about the maximum capacity of livestock on our farm for our size. Our farm here is 80 acres. And so we don't have a lot of flexible space um, with the number of dairy cows that we have here and the other animals to be able to just let five acres go or 10 acres go. Like, and this is honestly, this is one of the challenges that I have is my conservation side and then my farming side is I was like, I want to have lots of pollinator pasture and I want to have the bobolinks out here. Um, but I also have to run the farm um, and, and it, it goes through my head every year. So when my dad was the farmer here, he would let some of it go where he would, he would just let the five acres. And that's why right behind the house, straight north of me right now, we have the bobolink pasture. We still call it that because every year he would let it, he would let it go. Um, but we just haven't been able to make that work. So our alternative to that is to let my dad do that over at his farm, which is three miles away where he does have a little bit more space and he can create, he can let it go and not graze it um, and let the bobolinks fledge out and come to maturity. Um, and I unfortunately don't get to see it here as much. We have a few pairs that come through, but then when the, when the, when the pastures get grazed, they do unfortunately um, usually uh, not make it through, or at least I don't see them. So yes, those are, so, and this is, in working in agriculture and conservation, these are, these are the trade-offs and these are the things that I think about a lot of how, how to make it work. So that's why I'm always trying to think is like, are there other things that we can do? So sometimes this year or next year, I should say, I would like to do more nesting boxes for other bird species that maybe don't nest in the pastures, for example, like, you know, bluebirds or, or um, tree swallows, you know, like other birds that would be out on the landscape that'll help us with fly control and things like that. Not the, not the grassland birds here, but at least increasing that diversity in other ways and thinking about conservation in what I can do on the farm versus saying, oh, I, I can't give that up for the bobolinks, but, but here's the alternative of what I could do. Great, thank you so much for that answer. I'm also curious just um, from your experience. So were you always rotation or was your farm always rotationally grazed? It has. So our farm has not always been, it has been since uh, like 2000. Uh, that's when my parents really switched it all over to, to grazing. But prior to that, it was a kind of a slow transition for 10 years in the nineties. And then before that, it was like a conventional dairy crop, crop farm. I remember the fields here being plowed up when I was a kid, watching the soil be flipped over. Um, and now I just, I can't even imagine that because now it's been in pastures for the last 20, 20 plus years. Wow, cool. Um, I'm just curious, do you, have you noticed a change between um, that? I mean, obviously you would have been young then, but uh, has, has your family kind of noticed a change um, in the insect populations or communities since you changed from um, just continuously grazing uh, and, and cropland to rotationally grazed, um, both in plants and insects, I guess, communities? 
Yes, there's because it's a perennial pasture system now where we just don't disturb the soil as much. You just have a lot more diversity of everything. Um, I, so one of the things I did, I didn't put this picture in here was one year I went out to the pastures and I just took a circle with my hand like this and I put it down on the ground just randomly selected it because I'm a scientist, randomly selected a spot. And I tried to count the different organisms within it just to kind of get an idea of the biodiversity. And I've done this in like other areas, usually cropland and you find like hardly anything in, in like the circle. I counted 110 organisms in an area this big and I don't have very big hands. I was just shocked at how much was in that life there and in the pastures in that small area. And I was trying to like calculate it out to like the number per acre and it was just a mind-blowing, mind-boggling number. And that was macro invertebrates that I could see. That's not even thinking about like the micro invertebrates that are in the soil that are just too small for my for my eyes to catch. Um, so yes, I would say that having having these perennial pastures out here absolutely does make a difference on the biodiversity of of insects for sure, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your experience there. Um, we had a, a comment also I wanted to make sure we addressed from Laura Payne. Um, Laura, did you wanna say your comment out loud? Yeah, I was just gonna to respond to Kelly's question about the bird nesting piece. Um, that's something that I've worked on in the past. And um, we, you were right on Thelma that setting aside a piece of the pasture during the nesting season is really important. I would say five acres is a minimum. Um, we were talking about, you know, up to a quarter of the acreage to really get a, have a big impact. And I was just gonna um, mention the notion of uh, providing cost sharing for farmers uh, to do this because you do have a, a loss of um, forage yield and quality during that period, but it really makes a huge difference in the bird population. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, thank you so much, Laura. Um, um, we, we also had a comment from Altfred Krusenbaum. If you're there and, and would like to um, say your comment, you're welcome to do so. Otherwise, I'm happy to help. Yeah, thank you, Sky. Hi, Thelma. Um, the examples that you brought forward about insects on your farm, they were all examples where it doesn't conflict with your cattle management. I'm just wondering, do you and Ricky fight about uh, the hornflies, whether or not you should do something about them? Or uh, how do you handle insects that are really detrimental to, uh, to milk and or uh, meat production? Yeah, so the only, the only issues that we have here in terms of like insects being pests per se would be the flies that do get on our cattle in the summertime at certain times. And it, and it depends on year per year what the, what the environmental conditions are like. Some years it'll be really bad and some years not so bad. Um, so yes, we do have flies and thinking about like, what can we do for fly control to manage those? Um, and to be honest, one of the things we had talked about was putting up some more bird nests. So we already have on the farm, some natural fly control things. Um, we have a big bat population on our farm. Um, we've got a colony this year, I counted them, there were over 40 in our barn alone. Um, and those help a lot. So again, this other diversity piece that I didn't even talk about the bats, but the bats, we've got barn swallows, we've got cliff swallows. Um, so like birds in particular are really good at fly control. Now that's not, that's not, that's, 
controlling the flies once they're out there, but there's also that thinking about like, how do you control the flies maybe before they even become a problem? Um, and that's something that's been a little bit harder to uh, figure out. So we'll work on that. And as we find more options, we'll let you know. We have thought about, there's biological control for flies um, where you release parasitoids out into your fields that can control them. And I know they can be really successful in some situations, but our challenge is actually that we are rotationally grazed farms. So we're always moving. And because of that, it's really hard to keep up with where you release these parasites because I have looked into, I've looked extensively into the life cycles of those particular parasitic wasps and it doesn't quite work with our system, unfortunately. I'm a huge proponent of biological control, but in this case, it just doesn't work with ours. Um, and we've tried, we do a lot of natural repellents as well, using different uh, plant volatiles that you apply to the cows so that just repels them. And it, they do work, uh, they just don't have a very long longevity, so they kind of wear off pretty quickly. Um, so those are some of the options that we have used. Yeah, so, and that's really, flies are the only problem really that we've had of it being Thank an insect pest. Yeah, hard to avoid <laughs> I, I, from what I understand about uh, uh, cattle farms and cow farms, it's flies are there. So we have some more um, questions in the chat here. Um, actually, Kelly uh, Van Beek, I know you, aren't, you don't have the ability to come off mute, so I'll just um, read what you wrote in the chat as a response to Laura. Um, a model similar to what Vermont Audubon has done to compensate producers for, for delaying haying reverse auction would be interesting to investigate for the purposes of compensation to have nesting refuge pastures. And if you have any response, uh, Dr. Handelbaker, you're welcome to respond to. No, those are, it, it's nice to hear those options that, yeah, if you wanna do some of this conservation that there is the opportunity to, to yeah, get compensated essentially for setting things aside. And they, they do that in cropland right now, you can, you can, you can set aside, natural areas and get paid through the federal government for it or even have food plots out there. So I was like, yeah, it's kind of that similar idea for, for grassland birds. I think it'd be really interesting to see more of that. Great, thank you. And Dan's there um, from UW Extension. You have a question? Yeah, um, thanks for sharing your information Thelma, about your farm and, and what you do there. Um, there, there's so much research out there about how farmers uh, learn to change their practices and learn to adapt to more conservation farming. Um, I, I'm just curious, uh, one of the things that we know is the, the, one of the most successful ways to do that is for farmers to learn from other farmers. So you mentioned kind of using your farm as a classroom. So how much do you go out of your way to, to kind of outreach and bring other farmers in there to, to show them what you're doing in terms of uh, soil health and managed grazing and, and diversity and organic farming and all that stuff. Yeah, I am a huge proponent for getting out onto other people's farms to learn something, especially if you're interested in trying to do it on your own farm. Um, it's, I, I try to personally do a lot of connecting between people so that if, if I find out that they're interested in grazing or pollinators or whatever, I was like, I, I, I try to stay in the know, at least in my area of like who's doing what or organizations who to connect them with that may be able to help them as well. 
in terms of like on our farm of doing that ourselves, we have done some in the past and it's kind of depended more upon what my workload is, what my current job is um, and being able to do that. When I was working with the Xerxes Society, we did do some on-farm things. I did a lot of the demos on how to do native plantings on a farm, for example. Um, and I have, I have done it in you know whatever capacities I, I can. Um, I can tell you, like right now, I work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And now that I'm working directly with farmers on you know how to do conservation on their farms. I've had a, a couple of different local farmers come out who were interested in grazing um, because we didn't have anybody else really close by to be able to show them. And I wanted them to understand what grazing was before they signed on to something they didn't quite understand. And so I was like, just come out to my farm and I will show you what it's like, at least on one farm. I always recognize like the way we do it is not the only way to do it. Um, but, but I have had people come out to do that um, and to showcase them because yes, absolutely. Seeing it firsthand just speaks a thousand words. I mean, it's kind of like why I tried to show photos today too, is just so you can see something of what is going on, but to, to be on a farm in person. And that's why I've really missed in the last year having pasture walks. Uh, there just haven't been that many. Um, so I haven't been able to send people to them because there just haven't been that many. So I'm hoping that that continues or picks up a little bit in the future next year so that I can, I can get people out and show them firsthand. Yeah. Thanks, Dan, for the question. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for contributing your questions here. Um, um, there's a, a, a late breaking entry to the chat here from uh, Cherry Nolden. Do you want to share your link here? <laughs> You're welcome, sure. I, I've been doing some research on dung beetles, and um, we've found that the dung beetles in our uh, surrounding farms, where they have more cattle than we have, um, have been increasing over the years. And with that, the hornfly populations have decreased, and um, it's really quite manageable now. Um, and this is one link um, showing some research on the way that the dung beetles can um, reduce hornfly populations primarily by uh, drying out and competing for the resources that the hornfly needs to reproduce in the manure pats. And our, for us, our dweller species of dung beetles are the, are the primary ones, but then also we have um, hydrophilid species that are actual predators of um, the larvae once they, they hatch, and they're also a dweller. So there's great opportunities with managing for diversity and in insects in our, our uh, rotational grazing systems. Thanks so much for adding that, Sherry. That's, yeah, that's fantastic to hear. And I appreciate that link too, because yeah, dung beetles are fascinating. And like you mentioned, they're also predatory dung beetles. So there's a lot of different things that they're doing in the grazing ecosystem to be adding to the overall health of, of how the whole system works. Yeah, thank you so much for adding that link and um, and 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 that addition to you know this I, this conversation around IPM and um, biocontrols. Um, it's so cool once we start looking at these species relationships, and I'm, I'm glad we could explore some of them today. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Heidelbaker, for joining us. I think that's all the questions we have time for at the moment. Um, 
if you want to share your uh, contact information in the chat, maybe folks can follow up with you. Um, thanks everyone for joining us today and we will see you again sometime soon in the next one. A big thanks to Thelma Heidel Baker for presenting in the Grassland 2.0 Digital Dialogue Series. The Digital Dialogue Series is continuing in 2022. You can visit grasslandag.org to learn more about this year's speakers and join one of our live webinars. Until then, thanks for listening to GrassCast, the Grassland 2.0 podcast.